So um, if you've been with us over the last, well, week, really, as a church, you'll know that we've just begun a series on the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, So Paul kicked us off on that last week, and we're going to be covering that for quite a long time. As a church, we're choosing to really give ourselves to understanding and getting to the core and the nub of some of what Paul is talking about in the book of Corinthians. By that, I mean the Apostle Paul, not Paul Brown. Uh, So that's what I'm picking up on today. Now, I've said this before, but I think it's worth saying. When you preach as part of a series, you preach something that's a little bit like a really good episode of an ongoing drama series. So my favorite series is called The Midwife. I absolutely love it. Now, because it's such a brilliant, brilliant series, actually, you can watch one episode of Call The Midwife, and it is brilliant, and it's engaging, and I highly recommend it. If you watch the entire series, actually, you will get layers of meaning and a depth from the series, the episode that you watch. So I want you to know, if you are here just for today, as a visitor, you are so welcome, and I've got so much faith that God is going to speak to you and give you something to take back to the context where you're based. If you're part of City Hope and you are here week on week, I've got so much faith that God is going to reveal to you things today that are going to help throw stuff of last week into context and will also set you up for what's coming next week. That's the beauty of preaching in a series. That's the beauty of grappling with God in this way. So those of you who were here last week, you will remember that Corinthians, we call it a book, but actually it's a letter, which is a bit confusing. It's actually a letter um, that's part of an ongoing dialogue that's going on between the Apostle Paul and the church that he has planted in Corinth. So he spent quite a long time in the city of Corinth. He planted a church. He stuck around them for a while, but then God moved him on. But, like all good friends, he kept in touch with them. Now, nowadays, we do that by Facebook, by email, by phone calls, whatever it is you do to keep in touch with those that you love but you're slightly removed from. Back in the day, none of those options were available, so they kept in touch by letter. Now, the thing that's great about letters is that there's a lost art of writing letters, and part of what's really helpful about them is that you get quite an extended turn of one person talking which means as the recipient, you get an extended opportunity to listen. The problem with phone calls sometimes is there's so much back and forward that you can lose that thread of a built-up argument. And when we read the book of Corinthians, what we get to do is really get to the heart of what Paul's trying to say, because he's got quite a long turn to really outline what God's put in his heart. And so that's what we are going to give ourselves a long turn at listening, actually, to the heart of Paul as expressed through the letter to the Corinthians. But the thing with all letters is that for us to understand them, it's really important to know who they're addressed to. So here is a letter that is addressed. It is addressed to, we can read in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1 of Corinthians, it is addressed to the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ and called to be holy, together with those everywhere, which includes Bermondsey in 2020, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. What can we get from that? Number one, Paul's addressed this letter to the church. Right In this letter, Paul is going to actually quite systematically and intentionally work through some issues in the church that he's become aware of from a letter that was sent to him. Um, And he's going to get some issues that are quite gritty, quite meaty, quite difficult. There are some heart issues In this letter, he's about to talk about unity. That's what we're going to talk about today, and that can be a real heart issue, and that can be uncomfortable. 
He's going to talk around issues of morality and sexuality. He's going to talk about how we relate to other religions and what we do with idolatry. He's talking about big things. And who is he talking about them to? To the church. It's not a letter to Corinth. There are probably quite a lot of things Paul might want to say to Corinth. Corinth is not a particularly godly place, right? Corinth is like a new build city. It's a city that's emerged in a trading port. And because of that, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of wealth. There's also a real clash of cultures. There's a Roman world, there's a Greek world, and there's a Jewish world. And they've all descended there because there's money. And as they chase that money, they're giving way to a lot of sin and bad habits. The city of Corinth is full of idolatry and sin, sexual sin that not only is there, but they're proud of it. In fact, as Paul pointed out last week, there was a jargon that said to Corinthianize meant to go for prostitute. That's how bad Corinth was. But Paul did not write a letter to Corinth. Paul wrote a letter to the church. Paul was speaking to the people of God in that city. And actually, just as I touch on the topic of unity today, I want to fully acknowledge that out there in Great Britain in 2020, we are more divided as a society than we've ever been. And you can read some brilliant political commentaries on that. You can work out in your own time whether Facebook or multimedia or the news is more to blame for that. You can write that out. It's an important issue, but it's not what I'm going to talk about today. Because I'm not here to preach politics, I'm here to preach the word of God. And the word of God is concerned with the church, it's concerned with our hearts. As I think that through, I think about the passage in Joshua when the people of God are about to pass over the Jordan into the promised land. And Joshua says, consecrate yourselves today because tomorrow God's got big plans. And so there's a call on us as a church to say, let's actually commit ourselves to our call to be holy That is who we are. And so over the next few months, as we as a church dedicate ourselves to the book of Corinthians, we're going to have to ask some uncomfortable questions. There's a meatiness to the topics that go on. Issues of the heart are going to be spoken about. But actually, we give ourselves to that because we know God's put a call on us as a church to be holy. For the moment, let the world be the world. Let's deal with our own hearts. Let's be willing to deal with the plank in our eye. Um, Secondly, what do, what do we know about those who Paul wrote to? Well, actually, as I say, he knows what he's about to talk about. He's about to talk, some big, uh, talk into some big issues. But actually, before he does that, what do he do? He reminds them, actually, of who they are in Christ. He reminds them that, A, they're the church. He reminds them, actually, they're sanctified. That means that at the moment they chose to say, Lord Jesus, I claim your life and your death on the cross. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and I make you Lord of my life. They were sanctified and they are holy. We are sanctified and holy. Paul is addressing issues of how we work that out in a context saying, actually, you are grounded in grace and you are a holy people. You've got a calling upon you, and that is why it's worth having the uncomfortable conversations. You are also together with those everywhere throughout the whole of time. We're part of a bigger narrative as a people of God, and we are under Christ's lordship. He then goes on to have a thanksgiving so after he's like established those aspects of their identity, he then says, I give thanks to God for you because of his grace given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's about to address some big issues, but he grounds it in revelation of who God has made them. We can address these issues with bravery because actually we know who we are in Christ. 
That's why we can do this. As we look in this series, if you are part of the church, if Christ is your Lord, if you can stand together with the church of Corinth and say, I call Christ my Lord and Saviour, know that there is a peace to have uncomfortable conversations. We're going to have some today, but actually because we are grounded in who Christ has made us. Grace given. Grace given. So what I want to do quickly... um, But with boldness, I want to say, if you, this morning, feel like actually you need a fresh revelation of God's character in you, we're going to respond now. We're not going to wait until the end. We'll respond at the end. But there's a response that's needed now before we can hear the rest of what God's given me to bring. So can you please just stand up and we're going to pray. So if you feel that you need a revelation of who God has made you to be, stand up now. We're going to pray for Holy Spirit revelation. Then we're going to get into the word of God for us. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, third character of the Godhead. Holy Spirit, it is your job to reveal Jesus. Your entire purpose and character and identity is to reveal Jesus to us. Holy Spirit, would you come now? Our eyes need to be opened again. Lord, our eyes need to be opened again. Would you give us courage and boldness? God, to be willing to address uncomfortable conversations in the context of knowing who you've called us to be. Lord, we are sanctified. God, as your people, we have been made holy. God, we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. We have been given grace for today and grace for tomorrow. God, grace is a free gift, freely given. God, you have freely, freely given me Christ's holiness for me. And therefore, I can be bold to address the things that that need to come into line with that. God, as a church, would you increase our revelation of you? God, would we approach your word with boldness and courage? Because we know we've been set free by a father who loves us. God, today, would you come and speak with us? God, come and speak with us. Come and change us. God, nothing here is holier than you. Nothing in our church community is more sacred than you. So, Holy Spirit, come and break us. Come and break us, God, that we might be put together in accordance with your glory. God, change us this morning, God, because what we are is not enough. God, change us because we want to reflect to you, Father. Amen. Amen. Okay. Take your seats again. It's a good start. So, Paul's done that, right? He's established a church in who they are. He's reminded them who they are in God. And then he gets going on his to-do list. Paul's got quite a long to-do list. There are a number of issues that have been brought to his attention by those who are part of the church in Corinth. And Paul's going to go through them systematically and deal with each one. With each one, he's going to tell them what it is where or where it is they've gone wrong. He's going to tell them how to get it right. And then he's going to plead with them to do it. That's what's coming. Now, in the list of Paul's priorities are things that are going to be addressed. Include issues of sexual morality and incest. Issues about how to have order in worship. Issues about how we deal with being in a culture where there's idolatry and actually food sacrificed to idols. In Corinth, it's hard to eat anything that hadn't been used in a pagan worship festival. He's going to deal with those issues, big, meaty issues. But what does he deal with first? What is Paul's first priority? Well, it's here. Is here in chapter 1, verse 10. It flows straight out of his thanksgiving for who they are. Uh, we spoke about it a little last week. We're going to speak about it much more this week. Paul begs the church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree with one another so there may be no divisions among you, that you will be perfectly united in mind and in thought. See, Paul's priority above some of those bigger issues or seemingly bigger issues, actually, his priority is to address unity. Actually, if you were going to write a letter to a church who, who was struggling a bit and you knew that there was not only incest, but incest that someone was proud of going on in that church, what would you speak about first? Would you speak about unity or would you want to address that? Actually, for Paul, there's a priority issue about addressing unity in the people of God. And that speaks something to us about how important this is for us. Actually, as a church, we are choosing to say we are being deliberate and intentional about pursuing unity in all that we do. Why is that? Because it is so close to the heart of God that Paul addresses that first. Actually, other things flow out of that, but Paul puts it there first. So I just want to begin by challenging all of us. How much attention do we give to pursuing unity in our lives, in the life of the church? Do we take it for granted? Do we assume it's all right? Because it feels okay for us, do we assume it's okay for the rest of the church? Do we, do we give our time and attention to it? Have we begun to just accept that division's a norm? Like, actually, it's all right, it's okay, we're getting on. We're prioritising a rotor, we're prioritising getting things done. Things are okay, I can walk with this limp. No. Paul says, let's address it first, let's do business on this. Why is it important to Paul? Why is it that Paul is emphasising unity as the first issue that needs sorting out? Is it because he's worried that the Corinthians might hurt their feelings by being a bit divided? Is it that he's worried about bruised pride amongst the people of God? Is it because he wants to be politically correct, whatever that means? Uh, is it because he's worried about Corinth and he thinks the church should show Corinth something about how to be united? Are those his priorities? No, that isn't, that isn't actually what Paul's about. Actually, we see in verse 11 to 13 why it is that unity is such a key issue for Paul. He writes, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Paulus. Another says, I follow Cephas or Kephas. I don't know how to say that. And still another says, I follow Christ. Actually, fundamentally, Paul's issue of unity and why it matters is that the arguments and the quarrels going on with the church have put Christ in the same ring as Paul, Apollos, and Kephas, Cephas. That's the issue. The issue with unity in the church comes down to actually an issue of the lordship of Christ. It's actually an issue of who do we think Christ is. It's not about who you think you are. It's about who do you think Christ is, actually. See, Christ does not belong in the ring with Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or Kephas. But until they can find unity, actually that's where he is. That's where he's been put. And that is deeply, deeply offensive. Do you know what I'm going to do, actually, quickly? I'm going to just remove my earrings because they're really annoying me. And if they're annoying me, they're annoying everyone. So I intentionally wore smaller earrings the last time I preached because this happened last time I preached. I didn't realise how long they were. There we go. Okay, it might be better from here on in. Right, so the issue was the divisions in the church were bringing Christ down lower. They're bringing Christ to the level of Paul, Cephas, or Apollos. They're bringing Christ into the ring to fight something out when actually Christ is on the throne over the whole thing. But as battles rage on in the church, actually what happens is we make less 
of Christ. And that bothers Paul deeply, and that should bother us deeply. See, what was going on, you see, uh, worked out in the verses later, is actually what people were saying is, Paul baptized me, therefore I follow him. Apollos baptized me, therefore I follow him. To the point that Paul says, actually, I'm glad I didn't really baptize many of you. Because actually you're choosing to follow the one who baptized you, not the name into which you were baptized. You've chosen to put that person on a pedestal, and by so being, you rob Christ of some of his glory. Now, that in and of itself is an old habit. It's not a new thing. It's not like the Corinthians made that up. Those of you who know your scripture well will know that in the book of John, we see the disciples of John the Baptist coming up to him saying, you better look out. There's a guy called Jesus over there. He started baptizing too, and more people are going to him. You better up your game, John the Baptist, because you want people following you. There's an old battery, it's an old pattern, a pattern that existed before Jesus came and before people knew who he was. And what did John the Baptist say when his disciples came to him and said that? He said, actually, he must increase and I must decrease. What the behavior of the Corinthian church said was, I must increase and he must decrease. By pursuing the one who's baptized them, actually, they decreased Jesus and they took him off his throne. Now, we need to understand a little bit more of what that division looked like in order for us to be able to address it amongst ourselves, because I doubt many of you can even necessarily remember who baptized you, so that fundamentally might not be our issue, but there is an issue uh, that we need to get to the heart of. So, who are Paul, Apollos, and Kephas, Cephas, and why does Paul choose to use them to illustrate what's going on in terms of factions and tribalism in the church? Here we go. It's no coincidence that when Paul labels those three people or those three tribes, he chooses to label himself Paul, a Roman citizen. He labels Apollos, who is a Greek, and he labels Kephas or Cephas, who is a Jew. In fact, to make sure we get that point, he even uses the Hebrew name for Peter. So you wouldn't necessarily even get that's who it is. That is who it is. See, Paul chooses to use people who actually represent the tribes and the, the conflicts that are going on that actually are cultural battles. This is a racial cultural thing in the church that reflects a racial and cultural thing outside, but it's come into the church. And those divisions and those factions are there. It's about a human cultural identity. It's a tribalism, and it offends the heart of God, and it robs Jesus of some of his glory. And so today, what I'm going to do for the rest of this morning is I'm going to unpack what it is that Paul says about cultural tribalism in the church. As I do that, I'm going to ask some probing questions. Some of them might be uncomfortable. We've got to hold that. We've got to live with that because we're grounded in grace. We have all been given, those of us who know Jesus, have been given a free gift of grace. So we've got a liberty to ask uncomfortable questions of ourselves. So these quarrels are going on between the, the Greek faction, the Roman faction, and the Jewish faction. When it says the word quarrel, it kind of sounds a bit petty, but it wasn't. It was deep fighting. It wasn't purely saying, I'm going after this one. There was actually a, a sense of shunning the other and doing down the other. And it was, it was dirty and it was horrible. Now, when I understand quarrels, I have a bit of experience of quarrels. I see quarrels quite often because you may or may not know these are my two children. It's Asha and Delana. Um, and because I'm their mum, I get used to seeing them quarrel quite a lot. 
It happens often. I've become an expert. And because of that, I have a lot of experience of watching how quarrels tend to work out, right? So they quarrel a lot. Their quarrels generally start about a minute after they wake up, because they normally start with who's going to get to cuddle me first, uh, which sounds lovely, but it's not, actually. <laughs> At six o'clock in the morning, is not lovely. It'll go on from there to what they watch on TV, Paw Patrol or Peppa Pig. It then goes on from there. It go goes on to what they're going to do, what they're going to play with. The thing that's frustrating about it is they both want exactly the same thing and then they want to fight over it until it changes something else and then they want to fight over that. It's constant and it's endless. So I see it all the time. And what I've experienced about quarrels with my children is that if I'm not intentional and deliberate about the way I respond, if I don't prioritise their unity as a family unit, and the way I respond, pretty much it's predictable the way it's going to work out. The way it tends to work out is that one of them will dominate and eventually silence the other. Up until very recently, things have changed slightly now, but Asher's the bigger one. Not so much anymore, but anyway, he was the bigger one, the stronger one. He had the right of the firstborn. He was there first. It was his house, his mum, his flat before it was hers. He does still like to remind her that he was in my tummy first. <laughs> and therefore, he would tend to dominate her and get his own way. Tended to be what happened. Actually, if as a church we're not intentional and deliberate about addressing cultural unity amongst us, that is actually the, the thing that starts to happen, and it's insipid. But what tends to happen is the majority, bigger culture tends to dominate and silence the cultures that aren't as uh, big or as dominant. And that has happened throughout church history. Um, and we need to have the courage to accept that. And actually, I, I speak as one who, who's from the majority church culture, as an unwhite British and middle class. And I have to acknowledge that actually throughout church history, my culture has been allowed to dominate and actually, in City Hope, we say no more to that. We say, actually, we are being intentional and deliberate about addressing that, about speaking into that. We have to be willing to ask uncomfortable questions. Why is it? Why is that not okay? Because in some ways, it's kind of easy, isn't it? Everyone kind of knows what they're doing, kind of works out. It, it, it feels sometimes smoother and more efficient. But actually, what happens after this bit that we've just read in the book of 1 Corinthians is we get the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and then we get chapter 2. Now in both of those chapters what Paul does in some ways when you first read it I don't know how many of you've been reading it this week in the build-up today it almost feels slightly random right so Paul's talks about unity and then he starts talking about wisdom and it can feel slightly contradictory or slightly odd slightly at odds with the beginning but actually I want to explain to you really quickly why Paul does that. See, there were these three dominant cultures, the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews. Now, each of those cultures had their own bit of cultural pride. They had their own thing that they tended to fall back on, the thing that they prioritized, the thing that they held dear. For the Greeks, what they held dear was wisdom and philosophy. They were proud of their philosophical prowess. They liked to stand on the street corners and now argue anyone else and be ultra-poetic as they did it. And that is why in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul asks, where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish 
the wisdom of this world. See, Paul says, if you're a Greek, don't think you can use your wisdom to dominate the church of God, because actually God's wisdom makes your wisdom look foolish. Your wisdom might look good in front of people, but when you know who Christ is, actually your wisdom has to find its place, and its place is subject to him and his lordship. So Greeks, you can't dominate. You can't dominate the church. But then we get on to the Romans. Now, the Romans were proud of an empire. They had military strength. They were the name to be. They were the one who probably slightly intimidated the others. Because There's always that sense of the Romans might invade Corinth at any point and say it's theirs. So should they dominate? Well, Paul says in 1 verse 25... The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So Romans, you might want to dominate with your strength, but actually when you understand who God is, when you have revelation of him, you realize actually your strength is subject to him as well. Actually that needs to submit to the power of Christ. You can't use that to dominate the church because Christ's power and strength is greater. Later in chapter 1, he says that God used the thing that was not to nullify the thing that was. God used Jesus, the one who was not, who was despised, to nullify the entire Roman kingdom and empire. He is reminding the church that whatever it is they hold dear as their cultural pride, it is subject to the power of Jesus. Then we get to the Jews. Well, the Jews were there first, weren't they? They were God's people first. Maybe they should be allowed to dominate. Seems fair. But actually, what we see is... Hold on. What we see is... What we see is where um, Paul spells out, and he says, actually, Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. We preach Christ and Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. What Paul is spelling out in that the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is actually that every human culture, whether it's the majority culture or not, is subject to the lordship of Christ. That Christ is the king and the victor over it all. We must be able to address our own cultural pride and put it underneath the cross of Christ. That's where unity begins. That's why in the church we have a hope for unity that you can't get out there. You can get government programs, you can get books, you can get ideas. Actually, we can have unity, true unity in the church, because ultimately we understand we've got a King Jesus who's bigger than all of it. A King Jesus who trumps whatever it is that you hold dear. So I want to... Oh, there you go. There's my verse that says it. There you go. So that summed up, I think, most neatly. So I've given you different examples. But in chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says this. It's one passage that sums up um, how Jesus is uh, senior and over every culture. He says, The Jews demanded miraculous signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for the Jews. Foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who he's called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So if we're going to get unity to the point of cultural unity in the church, we have to be intentional 
about identifying our own cultural prides, our own bits where we're allowing culture to dominate, and we have to address those and bring them underneath the Lordship of Christ. I want to challenge each of us today to say, what is it? What bits of your cultural identity do you find it the hardest to submit to Christ? I have to be really clear here. This might, it it probably is a bit clear from what I've said, but I'm going to make sure I really spell it out. That question is directed to you regardless of which national culture you are from. If you are here and you are white British, that question applies to you as much as it applies to anybody else in this room. We all have got aspects of our own culture that we find it really difficult to submit to Christ. But if we're going to get to a point of unity in the church, we have to do it. Um, my easiest example of that would be me and uh, Kwame are married. Those of you who don't know Kwame, who um, prayed at the end of worship, is my husband. He's Ghanaian. We met in Ghana when I was there for three months. We got together quite quickly in that time because Kwame doesn't waste time with things. So we got together quite quickly. That was eight years ago. So for eight years, Kwame and I have been in a cross-cultural relationship. We've been married for six of those. Actually, we are still coming across things, and I am still coming across things that I thought were normal because I'm from a culture in which I'm part of the majority. So I thought we're normal, and actually I have to acknowledge they're white British, and therefore we have to work them out. And I have to be brave and bold in asking those questions of myself all the time. Um, And some of those feel big, some of them feel small, but each one of them must be addressed, and they must be addressed with boldness and bravery in the context of saying, actually, we are part of the church of God who have been sanctified by him. We're under grace, and therefore we can work out how to do cross-cultural, identifying those issues. Now, the outcomes of those are different. So, for example, uh, this is going to be an obvious one. So, there are some things where we would work out, right, how do we come under the lordship of Christ? And it turns out, actually, we just work out what we want to do. So, for example, as someone who's white British and grown up here, to me, it didn't feel controversial that you tend to have roast chicken on a Sunday lunch. It didn't feel controversial growing up. That wasn't, I didn't identify that as because I was white British. That's what everyone did, because that's where I was from. Then I married Kwame, and it turns out that's not what everyone does. Actually, it turned out we had to have a conversation about that and say, actually, in our marriage... Are we going to have roast chicken every Sunday? And we had to think about that. And I had to talk about what that feels like for me as a white British person. And Kwame had to talk about how that feels for him as a Ghanaian. And we had that discussion. And then we said, now we've discussed this from both our perspectives. Let's talk about the Lordship of Christ. How do we submit both of those different perspectives to the Lordship of Christ? Turns out we thought about it and we thought, I don't think Jesus is that bothered what we eat for Sunday lunch. It's all right. It's all right. And so actually, some Sundays we have jollof, some Sundays we have roast chicken. Actually, controversially, I mean, this shows how much I've moved. Last Christmas, we had jollof for Christmas Day. Can you imagine? That's how far we've moved. Because actually, when we look at the lordship and the example of Christ, I don't think he cares what we eat. What we eat. But, so mean to his lordship does mean that when we eat, we do it in a culture of thankfulness. When we eat, we do it in this culture of generosity. When we eat, even if it's um, beans on toast, we do that with a culture of hospitality. That's what it means for us to submit our cultures to the Lordship of Christ. Jollof, beans on toast, or roast. Actually, it's about who Christ has made us to be. So in a sense, that's an easy one. But actually, there are still issues we're working out that are a bit tougher than that. When it comes to questions about how we relate to and discipline our children... 
how as a mother and father we relate to a son and a daughter in a way that actually is not white British, is not Ghanaian, because both those cultures have aspects of God and aspects of sin. But actually we say, how are we going to do this submitted to the Lordship of Christ? That's uncomfortable. That's difficult. But seven o'clock bedtime isn't in the Bible. Nor is Clark's shoes. There are all sorts of things <laughs> that I feel were a given that actually once I ask these questions, I think, oh no, it doesn't have to be that way. Actually, I want to be really, really clear that Christian culture is not white British culture. And the city hope culture should not be white British culture. We need to be brave in addressing that, in asking that. I've been part of Christian mission all over the world. And what I've seen so often is a sense that Christianizing means white middle classing. Actually, we need to be able to repent of that. We need to be able to acknowledge that. And we need to be able to bring that under the lordship of Christ. It takes bravery. So I want to come back quickly to um, my children because what tends to happen, right? So I said one of them will tend to dominate the other. What happens if one is allowed to dominate the other and I don't address it as a parent? If I let it roll on, if I let that pursue, two, one thing can happen. It happens from two sources. Either whichever one is not allowed to dominate actually slowly retreats because it becomes too difficult. And they slowly pull themselves out and they just give up. Tragically, in the church, we've seen that so many times, and we must repent. Okay, we must repent of a situation in which those who feel that they haven't got a voice, in which one culture has been allowed to dominate them, actually then they retreat, and they make a new church of people who will listen. Actually, we have to hear that warning, and we have to change. It's really important. It's critical. So either that happens to one who's been dominated retreats, or I, as a parent, get so angry that I say, go to your room. You go there, you go there, you do this, you do that, and then we'll all have peace. And goodness, it is easier. It is easier. But it doesn't reflect God. And it doesn't reflect the heart of God. Tragically, that has happened so often in church history. But you see, Paul's cry to the church was a cry for unity, not uniformity. Uniformity is sometimes easier, isn't it? You think, actually, I'm just going to be people who think and look and act like me, and then it's going to be easier to work out these heart issues. But actually, the unity that God gives, the unity of the Spirit, is so much greater than that, and it is worth pursuing. It's worth the hard work of two chapters of examining your heart and your cultural assumptions and motives. Because actually, Paul speaks, and he says, whether Paul, Apollos, or Kephas, so whether Roman, Greek, or Jewish, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours because you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. See, we as a church are of Christ. I don't want to be a, a church who are united by anything other than the blood of Christ. Do you get that? It's really vital we get that. I do not want to be part of a church whose unifying factor is anything other than the blood of Christ. Because if I am, I make the blood of Christ weaker and shallower, and I, 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 I devalue who Christ is. So as City Hope Church, we've got a vision not to be a white church, not to be a middle-class church, not to be a black church, not to be a Londoner's church, not to be a uh, working-class church, not to be a young church, not to be an old church. We've got a vision to be a church of Christ the King, who submit every single one of our values to his all-consuming power and supremacy. 
Do you know what I realised when I was preparing this preach and I was thinking about my slides and my visuals? I put up that picture of my kids, right, and they look all happy and smiley and they're, they're huggy. Um, it was when we were on holiday in Ghana. What I was thinking was, surely I've got a picture of them quarrelling. I must have. I mean, it happens 50 times a day. I must have one. Do you know what? It turns out I don't. I mean, I searched and searched. I don't have one. Why? Because when they quarrel, actually, as a mum, it breaks my heart a little bit. Because I see two children who I love equally, two children whose status and rights is already established as my children who I love. And when I see them fight, actually, I don't want to take a photo. I want to cry a little bit. Actually, it doesn't honour me or make me look good. So those aren't the photos I'm going to put on Facebook and have you all say, ooh, they've got a good mum. No. I put the photos on Facebook where they look all happy, so you think, oh, they had a nice holiday. You don't know about what happened before because it doesn't honour me and actually doesn't honour them either. Actually, what brings God honour is when as a church we're able to do this, we're able to work it out. We're able to work out how to submit every part of our cultures and who we are to the supremacy of Christ. And actually, that is a good, pleasant and lovely thing. The reason why Paul prioritises unity, as I said at the beginning, is not because he doesn't want people to be offended. In fact, I really struggled in preparing this preach because I was really worried about offending. I have to recognise that is a British challenge. It's a British cultural challenge. I find it hard to offend people. I was worried about offending. And actually, I have to submit that to Christ. I have to say, do you know what? It's okay. I've got to say what God's given me to say. I've got to submit that cultural stronghold to Christ. Because if I don't, we don't get to the nub of this and we don't face the issue. Actually, those are things we have to submit to Christ. Why? Because ultimately it brings God glory. That's why Paul prioritised this. That's why unity in our diversity is so vital. That's why as a church we are building intentionally and deliberately to say we do not want one culture to dominate, even if that is the majority culture. Actually, we want a church in which every cultural stronghold is submitted to Christ. Why? Because that brings God glory. That's what we're about. When we don't do that, we actually take away from God's glory. Where I want to leave us this morning is actually before the throne of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to leave us in the book of Revelation where the Apostle John was given a revelation of what God's glory in heaven looks like. An angel is walking him around and he's checking out what it looks like. And he gets this point where he's before the throne of the living God, where his glory is manifest and all-consuming. And he says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, one voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The reason this matters is because actually in the very heart, in the very throne room of God, where his glory is manifest, there is unity between the nations. There is something of God's glory that is revealed when people from every tribe and tongue and nation bow the knee and submit to the Lordship of Christ. When we put him there, actually the unity thing, it works a bit easier. Actually, when we're, st- when we're not doing that, what we're saying is actually our cultural pride comes before him. 
And that, that is not a glorious view. What I want us to do now is I want the band to come up and I want us to just focus on the Lordship and the glory of Christ. Those uncomfortable questions that we were asking, we want to ask them in the context of actually the Lordship of Christ, who he is. He is the lamb on the throne from beginning to the end. So the lamb who's at the centre of the throne, will be our shepherds. He leads us to springs of living water. It is him.